Now, that to me is the meditation connection right there. Beautiful. You know, yeah. look within. And, and that in many ways, how we frame thoughts largely does form how we experience our lives. Hey everybody, John Simon here with Drawing Your Own Path. Yeah, my second episode. I'm trying to make a podcast of it, so thank you for listening, thank you for your support. It's all very new to me, the audio part, but the ideas and the conversations I've been having for a long time, and I hope to share that with you. I want to further explore the connections between creativity and consciousness, something I've been working on for a long time, something I wrote about, something I practice every day. Feel free to join us on our Facebook group, Drawing Your Own Path, where people are practicing everyday drawing, sharing their work, sharing their ideas. It's fun. It's really starting to grow, and I'm really enjoying it. And uh, I'm enjoying this new direction, becoming an interviewer, being able to talk with other artists really in a focused way about our ideas and about uh, where creativity comes from, where do our ideas come from, something that fascinates me. So I hope you'll join in. Today I'm going to speak with Eva Lee. I met her a long time ago. She's an artist, an experimental filmmaker. She's also a meditator. Uh, we've crossed paths at the Aldrich Museum where we've both shown work. Really a super interesting person and she does take an approach to her work through technology, through creativity, and through introspective practices. And she's looking at the way we create and the mind in all sorts of different ways, which we talk about. If you want to see the videos that we mentioned uh, during the conversation, they're at her website, evaleestudio.com, E-V-A-L-E-E-S-T-U-D-I-O, evaleestudio.com. I encourage you to go there and check out her work. And I want to thank you in advance for listening. This is, uh, like I say, an ongoing project. And if you have comments or feedback or suggestions for people who might be interesting to bring on, Go to my website, drawingyourownpath.com, and uh, at the bottom of every page, there's a link to email, and I'd love to hear what you have to say. I also wanted to let you know that the podcast is now listed on iTunes, so feel free to go there, subscribe, give us a five-star rating. And now, without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Eva Lee. Here we are today. I'm very excited to speak to Eva Lee. Well, first of all, hello and welcome. To the show. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so well, pleased to be here. Very gracious of you to come on, so I thank you for that. Uh, again, I was looking over your beautiful website. It shows mm -hmm. a, a great amount of your work, history of your work, and, your, and I didn't realize that you did so much in visual art and watercolors and drawings and things like that, so that was really fun to find out. And also uh, that you were very early influenced by Dr. Seuss. <laughs> yes, that, that's my Dr. Seuss story, which is absolutely true. Um, you know, we artists always have to write artist statements. It's not always the easiest thing to do. But I remember one year I was rewriting mine and I started thinking, you know, about the current ideas I was working with. Where did they come from? And as I thought about it, I remembered sitting on my sofa as a kid and, you know, maybe I was eight or nine, ten, I don't know. And I read, you know, Horton Hears a Who by Dr. Seuss. And when I finished that story... I, my mind was blown away. 
Um, and, and for those of you who don't know the story, it's basically about an elephant who's in the jungle by himself, and he hears a sound, a little who, coming from what he realizes is like a speck. And the speck lands somewhere, and he, he, he discovers there's a world of creatures living on this speck. And none of the other animals hear it. And, you know, the, and the story goes on from there. But I finished reading that story, and I thought, my goodness, what if I was one of those jungle animals who couldn't hear the who. And then I wouldn't know that there was this whole experience, this whole reality that existed. And um, that, anyway, that blew me away. And as a kid, I sat there on the couch and I started looking around and it was like my world became different, animated in a different way. You know, what if there was this spot on my sofa where there was a speck that had living things on it and I didn't know about it? So yeah, yeah, such an amazing story. I love that story because it because it's the whole the whole idea of the hidden world and the imagination and the, yes. and, the, and the introspection that it leads to and the wonder that it leads to. It's just a great story, and I think it does inform a lot of your work when I see it because it, your work involves uh, hidden spaces basically and revealing hidden spaces. I think yeah, and I yeah, I think that that became you know fast forward when I you know, became a college student and then developed as an adult. I think that original notion that the world is to be discovered, you know, that there's a phenomenal world that you may not experience, mm -hmm. but that it exists is what drives, you know, my wonder uh, as an artist. You wondered in the beginning about your source, the source of where those ideas came, come from, and I think that's a really great uh, inquiry to make, especially in the beginning, and I, I certainly spent a lot of time wondering where my creative ideas come from, mm -hmm. and and then to have this discovery, such a <laughs> fascinating thing, that there could be these worlds somewhere. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Right. I'd like to interview you. <laughs> <laughs> so you you uh, you live in Connecticut. I know. Were you born there? Did you go to school there? Uh, no, no. I was born and raised in New York City, and then I went to college um, at Bard College, upstate New York. Right. Um, yeah, That's and near and me here too. Yes, yeah, be a great reputation now, Bard. Bard. It's Beautiful a wonderful school. school. Yeah, it really is. I, in fact, I, I really do credit my alma mater for um, helping me develop my thinking as well, because they were very big early on um, with interdisciplinary inquiry. Um, classes were largely taught that way. Um, and I think it gave me a, a kind of intellectual permission to think and combine ideas in all kinds of ways. Yeah, no, it's perfect. It's it's really it really shows in the work. So I see. Uh, I also know from the website, and I see that you have um, traditional, say, visual artwork. Was that being done in college? Did you get an art degree doing these I did. drawings and yeah. watercolors? Uh huh. Yeah. I my training is as a painter. Um, so I actually discovered when I was working on my MFA. <laughs> that um, the ideas I wanted to talk about were, were maybe not best served by painting. Um, and so eventually I segued into making moving images. Um, but that was, that, that's, that was gradual. <laughs> okay, yeah. So I was, I'm wondering about that, when, uh, when um, sort of science and technology became part of the dialogue. You know, prior to my doing my MFA, I was already dealing with, you know, scientific ideas. I mean, I said to myself, 
you know, what is all this? What is mind and what is mm. what we call reality? And I started wondering, you know, what did the ancients, you know, have to say about it? And what did different disciplines have to say about it? You know, so I was reading a lot of Jung and I was reading a lot of Joseph Campbell and and looking back in terms of um, in a comparative religion sort of way, that was one path. But then I was also fascinated by what was going on in neuroscience um, in terms of studying what happens in the brain, how, how, you know, cognitive functions and how we perceive and process um, and then therefore come to define what reality is. Um, and then I, I did a lot of reading in philosophy, you know. I mean, of course, that goes way back to college as well. I think eventually uh, the, the science came in because I realized that we're living in times where we believe and sort of coordinate our world according to a Cartesian scientific viewpoint. And, I mean, who can deny that, you know, laboratories and scientists and inventors have really driven, you know, what has become our modern society. Absolutely, and, our whole view of the view of how we see things and how we reason. And it, yes. The whole, the whole uh, algorithmic approach is affecting our laws and affecting the way we manage things. It's true. Yes. I mean, it, and that was a huge, you know, human cultural development. Um, so that, that's why, where the science part came in. Mm. Um, but I've also come to realize, you know, science, like any form of knowledge, also has its limits. You know, science is quantitative, largely. And it, it does an amazing job at describing and predicting, you know, our natural world. But we also have human intuitive experiences, you know. I mean, science can't really talk that much about love, mm. you know. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. This boundary is so fascinating where, yeah. where the scientific description breaks down and how people would ascribe reality to what can be measured or what can't be measured. That's right. That's right. And and of course, a lot of the things that just cannot be measured, we call it subjective, you know, subjective experience, subjective reality. But they're every bit as real. Right? Yes, quote, exactly. Quote, real. Exactly. Quote, real. <laughs> <laughs> the immeasurables. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So um, I want to bring in the other part of it, which is uh, interesting to creative contemplatives, which is practice and how you discovered practice and where it took you and how long you've been doing it? You know, uh, in Buddhism, people say that, you know, there are many doorways to enter Buddhism. And I, I, I'd have to say that for me, I entered it through studying. Um, you know, I mentioned philosophy earlier mm -hmm. um, because I was interested in what philosophers had to say about what reality, mind and so forth are. Um, eventually, I landed with reading Buddhist philosophy and, you know, I, I found it was not easy to grasp because very often um, those Buddhist concepts are discussed and written about in esoteric ways, you know, sure, um, sure. through, there, through or, stories. Yes, or pointing to things. Yes, pointing instead of exactly describing. Um, and then there was one day where uh, actually a graduate school friend of mine, Eric Lee, who's a painter, um, recommended a book to me called Religion and Nothingness, written by a Zen master, uh, Keiji Nishitani. 
And I read that book and bam, suddenly mm-hmm. I understood because he talked about the foundations of Buddhist philosophy in a very straightforward way. And I suddenly understood the concept of what's called conventional reality and ultimate reality. And then I came to understand what it means when when we say that Buddhist philosophy is non-dual. You know, it's a non-dual right. view right. of reality. All right, not separate. Yes, yeah. not so separate. This, so this conventional... Uh, and ultimate, this is a similar Horton, here's a who moment, perhaps. All of a sudden, there was a whole universe out there beyond what, you know, your immediate day-to-day yeah. experience was. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's a good connection there. I had not <laughs> thought of it like that. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a, uh, but, yeah, I I would have to agree with that. Absolutely. I, yes. I, I see that. That's, it's You know, maybe call it a doorway or I don't know exactly, but that there's that turning. I think in The Secret of the Golden Flower, they say turning the light around. There's that moment when you turn it around and you start to self-examine that awareness yeah. and, and start to see the depth of that. So were you were you sitting? Were you uh, in, in a in a sangha anywhere? When did, did, did you get involved in that? No, I, I, I don't think I got involved with meditation right away. I mean, I'd always been curious about it. I was always open to yoga and all sorts of sort of physical, spiritual, you know, practices that would lead to uh, spiritual thoughts and awakenings. You know what? Actually, now I remember. I one day had a conversation with University of Wisconsin's um, renowned uh, neuroscientist, Dr. Richard Davidson. And um, at the time, I had been wanting to go to India and but but it was totally a, a dream back then. It didn't happen for probably another decade. Um, but I remember talking with him and saying, "Yes, I, I'd love to go visit India." And he must have asked me, what, "What would you like to do there?" And I think I said to him, "Well, I'd like to study meditation and travel and see the sights there." And he very gently said to me, "Hmm." He goes, "Well, you know, to study meditation." It's not necessarily, India is not necessarily the best place for a beginner. Mm. And he left it at that. And he said, you know, there are some excellent teachers here in the U.S. And that's how I learned about Insight Meditation Society. Right to the top of the meditation teaching world, I think. (laughs) Yeah, I think they're pretty, yeah, they're pretty excellent teachers there. Um, so I, I guess some time must have passed before my interest was piqued, and I thought, oh, gee, maybe I should look up and see what sort of schedule they have. And then one thing led to another, and one day I think I started off with what I thought was a safe weekend-long retreat, and I uh, probably went for a couple of days, and that was the beginning of meditation, I guess. Um, and, you know, they teach, as you probably know, they mainly teach Vipassana uh, meditation there, um, which was, you know, a wonderful practice. An insight, insight meditation. Yes, insight. Yeah, good. And you you had some some well-known teachers there? Indeed, yes. Uh, Sharon Salzberg, um, I consider her really um, my original teacher. Um, And then uh, Joseph Goldstein, of course. Uh, I've been in on retreats where he was the main teacher. Um, Beautiful. And yeah, and a, and, lot of, a lot of compassion there too. Absolutely, 
absolutely. Um, and in fact, it was Sharon Salzberg who got me started on compassion meditation. So did you find when you were um, beginning and you were working um, in, the, in the drawing and the printmaking, et cetera, and the watercolors, uh, when looking back, do you see that there was a meditative aspect that you were tuned to when you were doing all that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, after all, when you think of how we artists are trained, we're really trained from a kind of enlightenment point of view, you know, problem solving. We investigate into art theory and art history. It's like a research project, you know. You know, I think it comes from, like you said, the enlightenment period, not enlightenment like meditative enlightenment, but the yeah, European exactly. enlightenment. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that clarification. There's an interesting, I just thought of that too when you said an interesting crossover <laughs> terminology there. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, the uh, enlightenment or renaissance thinking where there was one point perspective was developed and uh, exactly and uh, exactly. the picture plane was broken down and then all the sort of measurables that could come in about aesthetics. Exactly. And it's all about rationality, right? It's yeah. all about, um, you know, uh, measuring and, uh, and, and getting accurate perceptions of phenomena. You know, or having having a concept which could be defined and then conveyed, you know. So, so mm-hmm. it, it it comes into words at some point. So the, the the immeasurable parts and the feeling parts don't get as much play, even though they're part of the reception of the work. Mm-hmm. Uh, many times the work has to be explained, or there has to be a meaning behind it. So there was a, the whole the whole movement of history painting and that sort of thing. That's right. Or on a religious painting, they all had a point to them, you know, even though you can see the great painters were able to work around and really play with the aesthetics and the colors and the light in there. Right. There's always that, that grounding, that rational grounding to why the painting was being made. Right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. And even when you move into modernism, I mean, there's this whole aesthetic about materiality and perception and that hopefully the viewer would then be able to transcend beyond that, too, and then reach something else, you know, get on the emotional level. Of course, I'm thinking of Rothko and right and his generation. That is my original love of abstraction is going back to, you know, the, the motivations of you know, the artists from that generation, you know, such as Rothko um, and, and, you know, and I, and I guess yeah, yeah, in a no, way... It's, no, it's very interesting. I want to, I want to, uh, I want to ask you what, how you describe your, the space, especially in the early, well, in all the work that you do, but even in the early drawings, how you describe the space that, uh, do you think of it as abstract space? Absolutely. And I thought of it as vast, continuous, unending space. You know, but of course it would be captured on your picture plane, you know. Right, right, right. See, I, th- when, it, when it comes to that, I have a term which I call diagrammatic space. And I, I, and I like that in some ways because abstract space to me has, has, doesn't have a component. I mean, it has a completely mindless component in some ways, which is mm. nice because it's, it's involved with feeling. But I think your work also has, and there's some certain geometries to it. So I like to think of it, as, in, and I think of computer graphics that way as being kind of diagrammatic space. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and actually that, that's a, you know, that word diagram makes me think that it's at a certain point when I was pursuing my MFA, um, I, I had been painting at that time, and, and back then I was still working figuratively, and I was wrangling with how you get away, how you, how you can improve, imply meaning through figures but then not be bogged down with all other kinds of readings with figuration you know and I I realized that it was too complicated 
Mm. Um, and, and that in a way, um, there was the burden of art history to deal with as a painter. Um, and, you know, and I feel like that needs so much more description. But, you know, right. one, right. one of my professors put it this way. He said, you know, if you're going to paint in this time period, you know, in late 20th century after modernism, um, you either need to completely invent, you know, and do something totally different and break with tradition. Or you need to, if you're going to adopt a traditional way, such as oil painting on canvas, let's just say, then you need to extend the art historical tradition, you know, such as someone like Eric Fischel, you know, yeah. succeeded well, just, in doing. Just looking at his work today, he's done some really amazing recent work. Mm-hmm. I mean, his, his work always good, but a time, some timely political recent work that's just come out. So, yeah. Oh, I should go and look at it. Yeah, it's up um, in Chelsea now. What you're saying about figures and meaning, though, is really important, I think, because we choose so many symbols. And ha- either we either we take the symbols and their meaning or we have to completely invent the symbols that we use. Yes, yes. And, and, and okay, so I'm trying to make my point about, you know, your word when you said diagram. So back when I was doing my MFA, I, I thought, oh, my gosh, here I am getting my MFA in painting. And suddenly I've discovered that painting has too much weight of history for me to push beyond and, and start talking about what I wanted to talk about, which was, you know, what is mind, what is reality? And um, so then I started being more diagrammatic. You know, I began using numbers and and computer code. Uh, I I was thinking of, you know, ancient um, uh, tablets, you know, where we we now look at Egyptian, um, you know, tablets and and we're so stunned by the language that they use, you know, that you have to therefore interpret it. So I, I thought, you know, maybe that was a good way to move as an artist. You know, let's let me see if I can invent my own language about it. And you and you took up new media or or at least filmmaking at that point to to move it into that realm. Yeah, actually, it was some years after that. But but what I, I did see. do at that particular time was I did give up painting and I went back to drawing. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I. I began to cut things down to simplify. I just kept simplifying and simplifying because I was getting a lot of flack from my fellow um, colleagues um, saying, you know, this, we see where you're going with trying to invent your own language, but we don't get it. We hmm. can't read it. So, you know, how effective is it if we can't read it? Um, so then I ended up making drawings that were simply dots and lines and when I hit on that and I did it with you know white ink on black paper I got excited about it and I thought let me see where I can take take this um so back then and we're talking about like um, even before we're talking late 90s here so my so I'm gosh looking at, I'm looking at a video uh, clip uh, that I watched uh, this week uh, called Winter's Veil Yes. Uh, from 2007, and that reminds me of the drawing that you're describing with the white lines and the dots. Winter's Veil came directly out of those drawings, the dots and lines. Before I discovered moving images, you know, I thought the black and white drawings were great because I was thinking of this vast universal cosmic space, and my marks were simple enough so that you could imagine it as a viewer. 
on a micro scale or a yeah. macro scale, you know? Scalable diagram in some way. And, he, and when, I, when I made my own uh, diagrammatic works, I would say, it, even if it's only a diagram of the place where my hand has been, uh -huh. it's just a diagram of that moment where, where I was touching the paper. In that way, it's a diagram. If it, even if it has no symbolic value, that, it, yeah. that, it's, that it's, that's the space. What I intend for someone to look at is the space of where the trace of what I've done has been. But then there's all the other readings that come out of it, of course. You know, and, and I think that for me, when I had done a whole lot of these drawings, I started to think, well, where else am I going to take this? You know, <laughs> like, and I started experimenting. You know, what does one do with paper? You know, you can fold it, you can, you know, and I started to do some installation work with it, hoping to literally grow out of the bounds of the paper itself. Mm. Um, but it didn't work for me. I just, I, I just, you know, I mean, we're all artists in a particular way, and I didn't find it interesting. You know, I was pinning things to the paper, and I was pinning the paper on the wall, and I just right, didn't—I right. didn't enjoy the process. But I, I so, think it's—I think it's great that you'll share that—that that, that there are all these twists and turns when you're working, and you can see the creative process working. How do I move this? How do I turn this? What can I do? And it doesn't always work out, but it always teaches you a boundary somewhere. Yeah, and I think that's a great point that you make because you know it's so hard as an artist when you're working on stuff, and your time is precious, right? Because we all have to do this thing called a livelihood, yeah. <laughs> and. Um, you know, it, it is hard to to go down those paths, which end up being dead ends, you know, to say to yourself, oh, you know, that wasn't wasted effort. Um, you know, I had to go there to to figure out that, well, it, it's I need to go in a different way. Um, but uh, but I spent some time, you know, fumbling around with that. And then I remember I, you, you know, it was actually when I had a studio visit with um, the former director of the Aldrich Museum, um, Harry Philbrick. Harry came and he looked at my work, and at that time I was showing a hodgepodge of things. I had the drawings, and I had the watercolors, and then I had some things pinned to the wall, which were installation attempts. And Harry looked at my work and very astutely said to me, he goes, you know, this, and he pointed to my drawings. He says, I see where you're trying to experiment, but he goes, this, pointing to the black and white drawing, is where you have most invested your in your time, you know. Mm. Mm. And he says it would make sense to he goes, when I think about where you could go next, he goes, I think of this being moving, wow. you know. Wow. And and it was so odd that he had said it at that particular time because I just had this is one of those synchronicities. I just had an insurance settlement in which I got something like you know, I don't know, call it $1,500 or whatever, mm -hmm. of artwork that was damaged in transport. Mm. And I took that money and I bought my first digital ah. video camera. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> There's the transition. I know. I want to just touch on the um, Fulbright. You yes. went to the Himalayas and, and you looked at mandalas. And so I don't know if you can just kind of briefly take us through what that project was or, and how it sure. worked. Sure. Sure. So, yes, yeah, so I was um, I was so thrilled to receive this fellowship um, and I went as a uh, research scholar. So the idea was to actually it followed up on a previous trip that I had made to India uh, that was on a different um, grant. That was a Asian Cultural Council grant where I went to Dharamsala in India, which is up in the northern 
uh, India in the Himalayas. And I got to know friends in the area so that when I returned on a Fulbright, something like three years later, uh, so we're talking 2013 to 2014 now, it was a follow-up on what I had learned already previously about mandalas. Um, but what I'd learned previously was more about contemporary uh, Tibetan Buddhist sand mandalas, how they're made, what their meanings are, and so forth. So when I went back on a Fulbright, I was interested in its history before. You know, what, mm-hmm. did, what did the mandalas look like back in the 10th century? Mm-hmm. And specifically the 10th century because there was uh, what's called the, the second great transmission of Buddhism from India to Tibet. Um, during that time. So I had identified something like maybe 20 different uh, monasteries that are still in existence um, up in the Spiti and Lahal and Ladakh regions Mm. of of India, um, which was back in that time, it was Western Tibet. They are still in existence. Many of them are still functioning as monastic places of study and retreat. Um, many are not um, and, and are more tourist sites. I went to investigate to see if there were what kinds of mandalas I would find. And those were what are called Indo-Tibetan mandalas. Uh, so there was that portion of my grant. All of the research ultimately was to do a bit of documentation as well um, and, and then ultimately to create new work as an artist. The images that you have, and the and the, you have some clips on your site. Is it is there a full film that's not on the site, or is it just the clips that you have there? Let's see. I think what I have on there are five different clips. Um, I mean, I knew I would document in terms of taking photographs and maybe doing written documentation. I found when I got there that in some cases I was permitted to to film um, interiors of these ancient. Um, these ancient temples. Uh, and in some cases, it's specifically forbidden. Um, but I had uh, befriended and, and gotten the trust of, you know, monks at Namgyal Monastery, which is uh, the Dalai Lama's personal monastery. Uh, and I would travel with um, uh, basically a letter of introduction uh, from the office of uh, the monastery and um, it, it opened doors for me. Uh, and, and, and of course, they, they recognized that it was because I was there on a Fulbright <laughs> to, <laughs> to do research. Um, and because they knew me and they knew my interests and my work, um, I, I, I think they felt that I had good intentions. Um, so so I, I wound up um, being able to videotape And when I came back to the U.S., I thought, wow, you know, it became obvious that, you know, these are important records, um, maybe from a scholarly, but as well as a conservation um, efforts, because I found that many of the mandalas were painted mandalas on the wall Hmm. um, in various stages of of need, you know, for restoring or conserving. And... um, so I did edit together what ended up being um, four different short walkthroughs of the interiors of um, some of these monasteries. 
the most well-known one being Tabo Monastery. And then there's one which is feature length, and that follows um, the Yamantaka ritual, which happens in about October um, annually at Namgyal Monastery. Um, yes, if that's what's on the site, it's really beautiful to watch the whole thing develop. And I've, I've been um, to Asia Society in New York City where they have constructed mandala over days and days and watched the construction of that with the sand. And yes. I mean, it's, you have to see it to really get it, <laughs> how much work it is and how, yes. how fine the detail is. Absolutely. My impression would would be, my, my naive first impression would be that they would not evolve and change that much over the centuries. But, I, but you said you were looking at that, and I wondered if you saw changes. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. There, there were a lot of, um, I mean, in a way, you could say maybe there were aesthetic changes and, you know, some tools and things. Um, uh, to, uh, tools meaning, I'm sorry, I should back up and say, in the case of sand mandalas, I would guess that they were not being made in the 10th century. <laughs> okay. Um, but then again... Uh, they're ephemeral, and unless there were written records of it, um, you know, unless there were photographs back at that time, because I don't think that Right, they're... right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, the, the beauty and the mystery of the practice is that it's made and then it's destroyed. It's, yes. It's swept away. It's specifically for that reason, that it is meant to be ephemeral. Now, that said, I'm also now realizing that... Um, the instructions for how to make these mandalas are also written in sutras. So there, they, there is a, a, a groundwork for them. Um, I didn't see any evidence of it when I went to visit these temples. Um, so perhaps it was done. But I will say that aesthetically, I bet they have changed because, you know, maybe we have different dyes now than, right. than they did in right, the 10th right. century. Um, Things like that, but it was amazing to to see, you know, where um, the the symbolic groundwork for this came from. Uh, the meditation practice that's often associated with it requires the meditator to sort of visualize a, a building or something like that out of the that the, the mandala is a kind of a floor plan for a visualization. Yes, that's right. Um, you know, so so we're talking about. Uh, Vajrayana, a Tibetan Buddhist um, meditation, which is, of course, different from Vipassana or insight meditation. Um, it incorporates aspects of it, but, but it is the more Baroque, you know, on the spectrum of meditation techniques. And it is said that uh, this Vajrayana form of meditation can actually take you to enlightenment faster. So in some ways you can say it's a fast track, <laughs> but, but it's not suitable for, for everyone. And in fact, there is a specific reason why it's oral teachings, um, because a teacher has to assess and feel that you are suited to be on a Vajrayana path. Um, so, so that said, yes, it, it's really elaborate. And the purpose of a mandala is that it, it's, you could say it's a, 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 a mnemonic device. You know, it, it's a visual to help a, a Vajrayana practitioner remember procedurally um, how to do the meditation. And it is 
like a blueprint because in the process you are supposed to visualize encountering the specific deity. So the 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 ritual that I had filmed, the Yamantaka, during my Fulbright there, you will see in, in that documentation the making of a Yamantaka sand mandala. The Yamantaka deity resides in the center of that mandala. But there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds mm. of different deities mm. and, and different mandalas. Mm. But structurally, they're the same in that the mandala represents the palace, the abode of the deity at the center, and the meditator will visualize entering the um, palace, encountering, there are also associated deities um, that you encounter before you head towards the center, where you then finally encounter, in, in this case, the Yamantaka deity. Mm. Um, That's beautiful, beautiful description. And yeah. I can't help I can't help thinking not only looking at the really wonderful video and documentation that you made about how strange and otherworldly this place really was and your negotiating of that space but also the space of visualization being again this this uh you know not things not what they appear <laughs> yes are, are the worlds existing alongside our world so all yes. this seems to start of happening and the mandala serving really as a great diagram literally a diagram of the space yes it absolutely is and and i feel that this is really really important to say tibetan buddhist practitioners they do visualize all kinds of deities encountering the deities and so forth but it is understood that that these are metaphors you know that, that, that these it's not that these deities exist they do not believe that these deities exist in real life necessarily it's understood that this is a method it's a creative visualization technique mm. to get to enlightenment and in this case we're talking about tibetan buddhist enlightenment and not the renaissance yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful it's beautiful I, I just love the way you 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 approach a subject for and i'm seeing it all through your work and you and from so many directions and with so many um uh, ways of looking at it and working with it so i love it and i want to go uh, to your latest project called dual brains and let's we'll talk about that and we'll see how some of the same things get revealed from completely different uh, aspects yeah <laughs> that's i know how do we make the jump <laughs> and you know uh, for for me it happens unconsciously i decide i'm going to do a new project and then later the connections become oh, that's why this is yes oh i like love that. that i love that that you grant yourself that permission you know i'm not sure that i we see that <laughs> and it might take some time before I can look back and go yes oh yes that's right there is a connection um, but yeah so let's see how do I make the jump from the Tibetan Buddhist mandalas and meditation well, well, we can to... talk we can talk uh, just specifically about Artahak and how you got involved with them and what they are and and how the project developed you know just uh, practically yeah okay let's do that I had known about Artahak through, uh, gee, I don't know, I'm all kinds of, on all kinds of email lists. I must have maybe originally learned about it through Rhizome, you know. Okay, you? and Artahack is in New York, it's a, it's a collective? Yes, okay. yes. So Hack is run by uh, two artists, um, Ellen Perlman and Andy McWilliams. Um, 
and uh, it's supported by Volumetric Society and ThoughtWorks, which is a software development company that has uh, an office in New York City as well. So Artahack is something you apply for. Uh, it's open to creative technologists, designers, artists, um, and what they do is they ask you for um, an idea, and they will form a creative technology, you know, uh, group in order to make an idea a reality. It's, it's really all about, like, what happens when you take different people with different skills, you put them together, and let's see what they come up with. Um, however, specifically, Artahack, they, you know, Ellen and Andy will look at these um, proposals and they will choose an idea that they feel can work within the time frame of the fellowship. And uh, then they assemble the teams to make it work. And then it is artist led. Uh, so I got involved because I had this idea. Uh, oh, and I should also add that Artahack, um, they supply a lot of, you know, new technology that maybe a little out of the reach of most people. So they'll have available Oculus Rift, Emotive maybe. And in this case, this time, they had something called OpenBCI available, which is um, OpenBCI is basically EEG. <laughs> right. Uh, you're reading brainwaves. Yes, you're reading brainwaves. And it's, of course, not only that. Um, it, you can buy the OpenBCI uh, board, uh, which does a number of things. Um, but essentially, you can attach um, an EEG, you know, headgear to it, or it can also be um, EKG, you know, if you want to mm. read heart signals. Mm. Um, so, so it can take any kind of electrical reading. It's like, well, here it is, folks. What do you want to do with it? So it's an exciting thing. So I was really interested when I learned that Artahack could make that kind of equipment available. So I came up with this idea uh, that was inspired by um, some neuroscientific studies that are done that indicates that empathy is hardwired in the brain. And I thought, wow, mm. <laughs> you know, a physiological basis for, you know, um, people helping each other, people acting out of kindness uh, right. towards each other. Is it true? Is it true? The, 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 the neuroscience seems to show that it is. Seems to support it. How does it relate yeah. to, say, like mirror neurons and the, and the things in the gut that are supposedly tied to empathy? Well, if I understand it correctly, it, it does relate to mirror neurons in the sense that it's almost as if you have a you – so, you can so identify with other that it is like you. Mm. Okay, non-separate like, again. <laughs> yeah, it's like you yourself, and you will feel it in your own body, and it will trigger those neuronal parts of yourself that mm. help move you to action. It's fascinating. It's, it's yeah, really, very fascinating. It's really lovely that there is this development in neuroscience about these things that have, before this, been difficult to understand and quantify but hard with, to measure for sure hard to measure it, and it still is hard to measure i mean neuroscientists are using eeg and they're using fmri and and doing different kinds of imaging each type of data collection offers its own um, challenges and limitations yeah yeah no bias in all that um sure. so so without a hack i had this idea inspired by this um 
this neuroscientific research that was done by uh, James Cohen at the University of Virginia. He did a bunch of hand-holding exercises, studies rather, where um, he started off with happily married couples where one of the couple, and I believe it was usually the female, um, went into an, an fMRI machine under three different conditions. Um, and there was uh, the stress. The stress condition was uh, the application of a mild electric shock to the foot, mm. and the person inside the fMRI would see a signal when it was about to come. So that would, you know, create this stressful situation. Right. Um, right. And then the three different conditions were um, holding the spouse's hand, holding a stranger's hand. So in this case, it would be the technician running mm-hmm. the um, the MRI. Um, and then holding no one's hand. And the data showed, you know, like tremendous differences between holding no one's hand and holding someone's hand. Mm. And, of course, this was correlated with um, biochemistry, too. You know, maybe, you know, cortisol. I believe cortisol levels were... were right. Um, you're, you're, getting, you're getting a chemical rush from the contact or something. Yeah. And, and so so, in any case, I found this this study uh, to be just fascinating. And um, I mean, for those interested, please look up Dr. James Cohen, because I know he did a a, a TED talk recently where he discusses more in detail about his work. Um, But I totally love what he's doing. And I love that there is, um, you know, a, a scientific controlled look at things that are part of humanity's experience that are often difficult to describe and and to talk about and to quantify. Um, And I'm all for, you know, technology and science when it can help illuminate us as humans and specifically when it can maybe help create, you know, paradigm shifts for us in positive ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's definitely thinking for the best of it. It's true. Yeah. But it can be done. I mean, we can turn our research any way that we want if we're human beings making research or making decisions about where it should go. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And um, so that's where the Art of Hack idea came from. I thought, what if I take this open BCI and what if we did you know, measure our brain uh, responses under situations where two people would um, be thinking of a disturbing memory. Um, So first, there would be a settling down of the two people wearing, uh, each wearing EEG headgear. Um, And in fact, we actually had ourselves hooked up to um, to uh, EKG, and I, I, see, I see a picture of two people with headbands and looks like some wires in between them. Yeah, yeah. So we were connected to the same board, the same Open BCI board. Um, so in other words, we were simultaneously, our signals were simultaneously being captured and um, and then processed through Open BCI um, while we settled down for one minute, it's a three minute long performance. Um, And then in the second minute, we begin thinking about a disturbing memory that we each have. And 
there's no contact between us. And then in the third minute, um, we then continue thinking the disturbing memory, and then we hold hands. And the idea was, would we see any difference? You know, would, would you know, the EEG pick up uh, any difference in terms of the volume of the signal? And, to, and so, so I should... I should actually tell you, we, we had a, a, the dual brains team, as we called it, um, were five of us. So there was myself and there was Aaron Tricola, who is an industrial designer, and he was the one who designed the, um, uh, the headgear specifically for this project. Um, then there was Gabe Ibagan, um, who who's now um, uh, at UCSD studying computer engineering. And we had two artists, uh, Pat Shu um, and Gail Nissim, and both uh, know how to work with processing. And and Gabe was the one who uh, did the programming in Python. So he helped to take the um, the raw data that came from um, OpenBCI and then uh, work with it. So then he would hand that over to the two artists who would then um, use the data uh, through processing and create visuals um, that were then projected onto. Uh, so, so what I'm seeing is a real-time feedback on the on the screen behind that's, you. That's correct. It's real-time feedback. Yes. Beautiful. Yes. And and what and what was its collaboration as to how it should look, its design and colors, etc. Yes, we all worked on that together, um, and it is uh, based on. It is based on the, in the in the foreground. It's voltage that you're seeing, and in the background, we translated it to colors. Um, that and and here is my shortcoming because if Pat and and Gail were here, they could actually express to you what they did in in the processing programming language. Um, but I'm I'm short on that because I don't know how to program. <laughs> um, but, but we all worked as a team to translate it and certain colors represent, you know, certain readings in the data. I see. Um, okay. So you, you can see the shifts in the, in the brain waves by yes. the colors. Yes, that's and, right. And, and by the electrical output. So I'm dying to know the results or how it went. Well, um, you know, I, I say that this wasn't science. This was an art project. And, um, you know, we we definitely did this as a prototype in a way. Um, we only had something like, I believe, four weeks, four actual meetings of our team. Right. Wow. Wow. It's not a whole lot of time. Right. <laughs> I mean, we, we each would work on our own, you know, um, but then when we would meet on those four different occasions, it was like, come on, let's get to work and let's get things done. Um, so given the time frame, uh, we we came up with essentially this early prototype version, and um, we would like to continue developing it. Um, and so, but that's a different topic. Uh, so, so I would say that it's not perfect, but we got it to to work um, when we mm. we had the um, Artahack um, uh, presentation, and uh, and that was that was terrific. It was really great, and 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 actually, that is also available on my website. Uh, that was filmed by Artahack, 
and you can oh, yeah. you can see how that worked out. And so you're able to see shifts when you're when you're calm and when you're thinking of disturbing thoughts and when you're holding hands. Yes, yes, you can. And then we restaged it um, later on for for documentation. Um, and I would say you can you you can yeah. see uh, first of all that that there seems to be. Um, a calmer regulation, and you can certainly definitely see that as soon as we begin the troubling memory, some of the voltage is higher. Right. Um, and e- even if the troubling memory is, I hope this will work. <laughs> <laughs> there's immediately a shift, right, in yeah. what you're thinking. Right, right. Um, and I can say that that the the EKG um, that it itself was not done real time. Uh, we we did do that pre-recorded, but in terms of the time frame, you know, first minute, second minute, third minute, sure, we sure. followed exactly. Um, yeah, and yeah. So we well, like I say, it's an, it's an art project, and I think even just to convey this, uh, that there's a, a beginnings of uh, idea of measuring empathy, for instance, is, is so strong. Yes, right, just the idea and just to get that across. Just um, to get it out. So you, you took this on the road. I know you went to the Ann Arbor Film Festival. What was the experience in a film festival like? Oh, I did go to the Ann Arbor Film Festival, but it did not involve dual brains. I, I went because one of my films uh, was accepted for screening. And in fact, that brings us back to the Fulbright, because that film came out of my Fulbright experience. Oh, I see. Okay, uh, yeah. great. So that film, that short was called um, uh, Betwixt. And that was shown in a program that was called um, Almost All Ages. Uh, which was really nice. Um, so, but yeah, but just to finish off about uh, okay. dual brains. Sure. Um, we, as an art project, you know, uh, we we definitely hope just to to get you know this hacked together you know uh, project done in a very short amount of time. Um, but it really goes to show how you know, a, a group of people cooperating with such different skills can really come up with something, you know, sort mm. of eye-opening. <laughs> it's, it's true. And with the tools we have today to manipulate images and data and to manipulate uh, sensors, small groups can really make a big difference. Yes, yes. And, and so I think, I think my, my fellow team members would, would also agree with, with me when I say that we were just thrilled, you know, that, that we got it working at all. Um, and, and not only that, but we got it working with some indications that if we continued developing this, that this could be something far more interesting than, than just a, you know, novel eye candy, right. <laughs> you know, right. project. Um, sure. I mean, specifically because OpenBCI is a very powerful tool. Um, you know, you're getting raw data. That's pretty incredible. And, and it's very sensitive, their, mm. their headgear. Um, so, you know, it's, I'm excited to have been part of, um, you know, this team effort where if we could get people to at least think or question, um, what is this about? You know, what does it mean? It's based on that kind of neuroscientific study. You know, what? Empathy is hardwired in the brain? You know, Mm. what? You know, I mean, for me. If it gets viewers to ask those kinds of questions, you know, about what does it mean to be human and social beings and, you know, and, and, and look within themselves, 
Now, that to me is the meditation connection right there. Beautiful. You know, yeah. look within. And, and that in many ways, how we frame um, thoughts uh, largely does form how we experience our lives. Beautifully said. Beautiful. Let's talk about just for a minute or two uh, the future, what you see coming as far as what you're interested in in technology, what you're interested in artwork, where you'd like your work to go, and what you think is possible. I would like to continue dual brains in some form, and I'm I'm working on that. But at the same time, I you know I'm always shooting footage and and you know working on new experimental shorts. Um, it's yeah. super. I just I love the way you work. I love that you're free to move amongst these projects and that and that's like you know the blind men touching the elephants. <laughs> you're 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 moving <laughs> around this subject. You know that story, don't you? <laughs> no, actually I don't. <laughs> no, you don't know that story? Oh, I'll tell it real quickly. That you know the uh and it's told in many different ways, but basically uh the four blind men go and they and they each are touching an elephant, you know, and they're trying to describe it and one says an elephant is much like a snake, you know, it moves around and the other one says no, an elephant is much like a tree trunk because he's touching the leg and the one touching the sides. And no, an elephant is, is, feels like leather, you know, and so they're all, the, ele the elephant has so many parts and, oh. and that, that they're all describing the same thing, but all in a different way. And they all think that, you know, that their, their way is the way that it is because that's the one that they're touching at the time. So when we move around uh, sort of a bigger subject, you know, and, and express it through film and express it through drawing and express it through performance. You know, we're all we're like describing the elephant in all these different ways. Wow! So really, I, I, I see your <laughs> I see your focus there. You know, g going back to this, uh, the world is not what it seems, and the and the and the and and that there's more to the story. There's more to how we feel in d deeply inside than you know just what's out on the surface or just our immediate thoughts. Uh huh. Uh huh. So I lo I love that about your work. I do, and that and that you and that you naturally are you're really combining in a lot of ways the scientific, the artistic, and the uh, and the contemplative, in a, in a in a very nice mixture. So gee, um, well, thank you so much. I I <laughs> I guess I am doing that. I mean. What it feels like to me is like, oh, my gosh, you know, just fumbling around, you know, like and that's a great story about the elephant, because yeah. I really kind of feel like I'm fumbling around this elephant. And now it feels like this. And now it feels like this. <laughs> um, exactly, exactly. And yet you can see, I think when I step back and look at the body of work you present, uh, uh, I can I can really see the focus there. It's really a lot is coming out. And I think your intentions are really great in it. And that really comes through as well. Wow, wonderful. Well, it's so nice that you took this time to um, ask me about these things that I'm, in my words, fumbling around with. <laughs> so I just want to thank you very much for being part of it. Well, thank you. Really, thank you for this effort and, and for finding ways to give voice to, you know, this creative process, um, which can, in, in many ways, feel so inchoate, you know, and so so difficult to grasp. Uh, difficult to grasp indeed, and yet we still try. In the background today, gone back to New Orleans, back to my roots again. What you're hearing is one of my favorite pieces of jazz music, The Maple Leaf Rag by Scott Joplin, played by the Rhythm Kings, 1923. I'm a thrilled father when my son plays it on the piano. He does a great job. Thanks again for listening today. 
I look forward to bringing you more episodes. Check us out on iTunes, subscribe, and please try to join us on Facebook. The group is named Drawing Your Own Path. We have weekly drawing bees where we all get together and draw online, post our drawings. I offer classes, so it would be fun to meet you there, have you participate in this growing group of creative contemplatives. Take care.